On April 9, 1914, a naval battle broke out off the western coast of Mexico. The Tampico, a warship of the revolutionary leader Alvaro Obregón, was facing off against two enemy ships. Things were looking bad. The Tampico was outnumbered, outgunned, and taking a lot of hits. Then, the crew saw something that changed the course of the battle. A pilot, loyal to General Obregón, flew over the battle and dropped bombs on the enemy ships. While none of the bombs hit their targets, he did at least manage to drive the other ships off, saving the Tampico from defeat. None of the naval crews had ever seen anything like it before. It was the first time in all of history that an airplane engaged with a ship during battle. Thanks to his military innovation, General Alvaro Obregón was one step closer to triumphing over his wartime rival, Pancho Villa. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first of two episodes on the assassination of Pancho Villa, a Mexican revolutionary. After years as a bandit and a decade of warfare, Villa retired to a safe and peaceful life on a hacienda, only to be gunned down three years later in a still unsolved murder. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. At 5 a.m. on a rainy morning in June 1912, Captain Hernandez woke his prisoner of war, Rebel General Pancho Villa. Villa didn't know why he was being awakened so early. Confused, he followed Hernandez out of his cell. Outside, armed officers stood in a row facing a wall. One man pointed to a spot on the wall and ordered Villa to stand in front of it. Villa, who'd fought to place President Francisco Madero into office, couldn't believe he was about to be executed. He'd been a loyal soldier. He'd only been arrested for stealing a horse. His president couldn't betray him like this. While Villa protested, the firing squad raised their weapons. In seconds, it would be all over. Then a messenger appeared, demanding that the execution stop. President Madero had issued a reprieve, saving Villa's life. While the would-be executioners marched Villa back to his cell, he knew that if the messenger had been just one minute late, he'd have died that day. For 16 years, Pancho Villa was a Robin Hood figure to the people of Chihuahua, Mexico. 
He lived as a bandit in the wild mountains of the northern region, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Villa was so skilled at fighting and so popular with the people of Chihuahua, he was a natural recruit when revolutionary Francisco Madero tried to raise an army to overthrow Mexico's brutal dictator, Porfirio Diaz. Thanks in part to Villa's efforts, the revolution succeeded. But Madero only served as president for about a year before he was overthrown and assassinated. Over the next decade, countless new rebellions sprang up as ambitious leaders sought to fill the power vacuum. In 1920, a tired and defeated Villa agreed to retire to a hacienda near Peral, Mexico, and remain uninvolved with politics for the rest of his life. But two years later, a group of seven gunmen ambushed Villa's car killing him, along with his secretary and four of his five bodyguards. Villa's assassination remains unsolved to this day, but a popular theory is that he was killed on the orders of a rival revolutionary leader and the then president of Mexico, Álvaro Obregón. In this episode, we'll look at both Álvaro Obregón and Pancho Villa, their motivations, their histories, and their conflicting ideologies. Throughout the Mexican Revolution, Villa and Obregón clashed on numerous occasions, leaving Obregón with both political and personal motivation to want Villa dead. Although Obregón would eventually become inextricably linked to Mexican politics, as a young chickpea farmer at the turn of the 20th century, he tried to stay out of Mexico's volatile political culture. From 1876 to 1880, and then again from 1884 to 1911, brutal dictator Porfirio Díaz served as president of Mexico. Díaz modernized Mexico, building railroads and normalizing relationships with the United States and Europe. However, he maintained his power with oppressive laws. He jailed or killed his critics, including numerous journalists. He held regular elections, but as the public turned against him, he resorted to voter fraud to maintain his power. And as the Diaz administration transformed into a military dictatorship, he continued to publicly espouse the merits of democracy. But while Mexico was struggling, Álvaro Obregón was thriving on his farm. He had a natural knack for engineering and found work maintaining the machinery on other farms in the area. In 1909, at the age of 29, Obregón invented a chickpea seeder and made a good profit selling the equipment to other farmers. Meanwhile, the Mexican population was growing dissatisfied with Diaz's rule, and beginning in 1910, rumblings of revolution swept across the country. On May 25, 1911, after a year of fighting, the revolutionaries successfully deposed Diaz, who fled to Spain before dying in Paris on July 2nd. The revolution's leader, Francisco Madero, declared himself the new president. Obregón, as a 31-year-old single father of two small children, stayed out of the dangerous revolution completely. Even though he disapproved of President Diaz's rule, he preferred to focus on his farming, his engineering, and amassing wealth for his children. But after Diaz's overthrow, he did dip his toes into the less dangerous world of local politics. 
Obregón's hometown of Huatabampo was poor, and he knew that he could change the lives of his neighbors by instituting a good public school system. In 1911, Obregón won a seat as municipal president of Huatabampo and promptly used his position to open nine schools and revitalize the local water system. As municipal president, Obregón was a member of President Madero's government, even if his position was low-ranking. So when another revolutionary leader raised an army against Madero less than a year after he assumed office, Obregón marshaled his own local forces to defend the new president. Despite his lack of military experience and relatively low-ranking position, Obregón proved himself in battle and successfully stamped out the rebellion. He showed himself to be so invaluable to Madero's presidency, Obregón was offered a position in the federal government, but he turned it down. For this time, at least, Obregón wanted to live a simple life. He returned to his farm, optimistic that the fighting was over and peace would return to Mexico. Obregón's desire for peace was misplaced. Just one year after this rebellion ended, another revolutionary, Victoriano Huerta, overthrew President Madero and declared himself the new president of Mexico. Madero was executed in February 1913, just a year and a half after he became president. Once again, Obregón responded to the call to fight. This time, however, instead of fighting to defend the presidency, Obregón allied himself with rebel troops who sought to overthrow the presidency's usurper, Victoriano Huerta. Obregón served alongside other generals, including Venustiano Carranza and Pancho Villa. Villa was around Obregón's age, but he'd been fighting since the very first revolution that overthrew dictator Diaz. He had a reputation as a brash leader with a quick temper, the opposite of Obregón's cautious, quiet temperament. The two had a tense relationship from the start. While Obregón struggled to get along with his cohorts, he had great instincts on the battlefield. His engineering experience made him skilled at recognizing the value of new military technology. He implemented new tactics that had never been seen before in Mexico, like trenches and barbed wire. Some more traditional leaders resisted Obregón's modernizing efforts, even after Obregón demonstrated how effective his methods were. The other revolutionaries were used to riding into battle on horseback. Trench warfare was a bit of an adjustment. In mid-1914, Obregón upped the ante even further. He purchased warplanes from the United States. He organized several bombing missions, including using planes to drop bombs during naval battles, a first in Mexican military history. This tactic managed to save his ship, the Tampico, from a defeat by enemy ships. But Obregón soon found he had as many enemies within his own army as he did outside of it. Like Pancho Villa. The two men both knew they would need to install a new president at the end of the revolution, but they couldn't see eye to eye on what the new administration would look like. On September 23, 1914, Villa withdrew his forces and declared Obregón an enemy. 
Villa would lead his own rival revolutionary army. Twice during the summer and fall of 1914, Obregón visited Villa to try and negotiate a peace. But Villa never trusted Obregón, and he suspected these negotiation meetings were a trap. During their second meeting, which took place at Villa's home in Chihuahua, he ordered his men to hold Obregón at gunpoint. While Obregón tried to reason with him, Villa paced and shouted. Meanwhile, a firing squad assembled outside. Eventually, the fuming Villa stomped out of the room, leaving Obregón alone with the armed guards who were holding him hostage. Obregón waited for an hour, wondering if he'd survive to see the end of the day. Then, finally, Villa returned. He announced that he'd dispersed the firing squad. He had no intention of killing Obregón, but he was going to hold him captive for a while. For several days, Obregón remained Villa's prisoner until, without explanation, Villa let him go. Although Obregón escaped with his life, he left convinced that Villa's erratic behavior was a threat, not only to him, but to Mexico. On October 10, 1914, the four most powerful revolutionary leaders agreed to meet at the Convention of Aguas Calientes. The fractured groups hoped to settle their differences and unite as one army with a shared purpose. Obregón attended in person, but the other three leaders, Pancho Villa, Venustiano Carranza, and Emiliano Zapata, sent representatives. This was a mistake, as Obregón was able to leverage his natural charisma to charm the other rebels into joining his cause. The four factions didn't reach a truce, but Obregón left the convention in a much stronger position than he'd entered it. When the rebels failed to find a mutually agreeable candidate for president, Obregón threw his support behind one of the other four leaders, Venustiano Carranza. The fighting resumed with Obregón and Carranza's men allied together against Zapata and Villa. When Obregón and Villa clashed in April 1915, their battle was the bloodiest in the history of the Mexican Revolution. Villa's army was more than twice as large as Obregón's. Villa's 30,000 soldiers were mounted cavalry, while Obregón's 12,000 troops were on foot. But Obregón would never have earned his reputation as a military genius if he didn't know how to make the best of hopeless situations. Obregón ordered his troops to build walls and foxholes to slow down Villa's horses. After the battlefield was prepared to his liking, Obregón lured Villa's men to attack. Villa took the bait. His cavalry was slowed by the obstacle course, and Obregón's foot soldiers were easily able to pick them off. Obregón won a decisive victory, but Villa wasn't done fighting. Days after that defeat, Villa's surviving troops regrouped and attacked Obregón's men at the Hacienda Santana del Conde. Obregón was hit in the arm by enemy cannon fire. His right arm blew off right above the elbow. It hurt more than anything Obregón had ever experienced. All he wanted was for the pain to end and by whatever means necessary. He lifted his gun to his own temple. But 
Obregón couldn't leave his men on their own. When a soldier saw what his general was about to do, he wrestled the gun from Obregón's grasp. He was taken to a doctor, and he survived the loss of his arm. That battle, the Battle of Trinidad, lasted 38 days. While Obregón took heavy losses, including his right arm, Villa lost even more men, and once again, Obregón emerged victorious. With Villa defeated, Obregón's ally, Venustiano Carranza, assumed the presidency in 1917. As had happened in his last successful revolution, Obregón declined an offer of a government position, instead returning to his chickpea farm. But he wouldn't live the quiet life of a farmer for long. Carranza proved to be a weak leader, lacking the instincts to make wise alliances. In addition, he ignored many of the constitutional limitations on the power of the presidency as he built up the military and amassed wealth for himself. Carranza seemed destined to become yet another military dictator. The new constitution forbade presidents from running for re-election. Because Carranza's term would end in 1920, Obregón hoped that Carranza would endorse him as his replacement. Obregón believed he could steer the presidency toward the ideals of the revolution they'd fought for, while still giving the appearance of a united front with Carranza. Instead, Carranza shocked Obregón by endorsing a minor, inexperienced politician named Ignacio Bonillas. Many believe that Carranza hoped to use Bonillas as a puppet president to maintain his own control of the country. But Obregón wasn't deterred. In 1920, 40-year-old Álvaro Obregón announced his intention to run for president. Carranza knew the popular war hero was a threat to his own campaign, and he tried whatever methods he could to win public support, including stripping Obregón of his military titles. This backfired as the Mexican public saw Carranza's behavior as petty and dictatorial. They rallied around Obregón even more fervently. Fearful that he couldn't win an honest election, Carranza ordered his military to seize Obregón and his land. That was another mistake. Obregón raised his own army in response, and his long and successful career as a military tactician served him well. Obregón's troops beat Carranza's men easily. In May 1920, President Carranza fled Mexico City. He and his supporters took shelter with an old ally, Rodolfo Herrero. Carranzo didn't realize, however, that Herrero's loyalties had changed. He now served Obregón. On May 21st, while Carranza and his supporters slept, Herrero's men opened fire, killing Carranza and his entourage. Adolfo de la Huerta, the governor of Sonora, became the provisional president until the election was over. Before Election Day, Obregón ensured that De La Huerta's provisional government signed peace treaties with all of the enemy rebel leaders, including Pancho Villa. This treaty ensured that none of the surviving warlords would interfere with the new president's rise to power, whoever that person may be. That person turned out to be Álvaro Obregón. In September 1920, he won the election and became the president of Mexico. 
With the power of the presidency, Obregón could finally eliminate his enemies, including Pancho Villa. Coming up next, we'll discuss the life of Pancho Villa and the circumstances of his death. Now, back to the story. The man who would become Pancho Villa was born as José Doroteo Arango Arambula on June 5, 1878. José's family was poor, but their life was stable on the farm in San Juan del Rio, Durango, where they lived and worked. The Arambula family were sharecroppers, meaning they were responsible for working on a farm owned by the wealthy Lopez Negrete family. In exchange for their work, Jose's family received regular wages and could live and work on the land. However, since they didn't own the land, their fates were ultimately in the hands of the family that employed them. Jose never received regular schooling, and he was illiterate. He never imagined he'd need to know how to read anyway, working as a farmer. When he was 15 years old, his father died, and as the family's oldest son, he took over as the head of the household, bearing the brunt of the sharecropping work. The following year, Jose's life changed again. The precise details of what happened are hard to discern because he retold this story many times through his life and tended to change the details. One version of the story is that 16-year-old Jose learned that Don Agustin Lopez Negrete, the master of the land they worked, had raped his 12-year-old sister, Martina. In another version of the story, he was able to prevent the assault before it happened after he heard Martina screaming. Whatever the timing, Jose knew he was the man of the house. He had to protect his sister and uphold his family's honor. Jose ran to his cousin's house where he found a gun. He returned to his home and shot Don Augustine. The gunshot injured Don Augustine, but didn't kill him. Five of Don Augustine's men drew their own guns, but Don Augustine stopped them. He said, don't kill this boy, take me home. Jose didn't understand why Don Augustine showed him mercy. But Mexico's laws would severely punish him, a poor boy, for shooting a rich man. There was only one thing to do now. He fled to the wild mountains near San Juan del Rio to live on the run. While living as a bandido, or outlaw, Jose changed his name. Another bandido, Francisco Villa, had already achieved folk hero status among the people of Chihuahua. So Jose chose to begin calling himself Francisco Villa as well. Eventually, he landed on the name that would stay with him for the rest of his life, Pancho Villa. Little is known about Villa's time living as a bandido. He evaded arrest and avoided settled towns, meaning very few official records exist of his actions during this time. We do know that he robbed mines, rustled cattle, and stole from wealthy people who passed through the northern Mexican mountains. He didn't keep all of his stolen goods for himself, though. Like Robin Hood, Villa gave his riches back to the poor. The public came to adore Villa for his charity and the impressive wealth he kept for himself. The 32-year-old bandido was already destined for fame when, in 1910, he chose to retire from his life of crime. 
he was already wealthy enough to live comfortably anywhere in Mexico without fear of arrest. But Thea wasn't destined for a quiet life. Even as he left behind his criminal ways, his story was just beginning. In 1910, Villa met a man named Abraham Gonzalez. Gonzalez was a revolutionary who believed in democracy, real democracy, not the sham dictatorship Mexico had devolved into. He wanted to overthrow the dictator Porfirio Diaz. Up until now, the 32-year-old Villa had never given much thought to politics. But Gonzalez was a persuasive speaker, and he ignited something inside Villa. Villa would later say, I understand for the first time that all the suffering, all the hatred, all the rebellion that has accumulated in my soul during so many years of fighting had given me such a strength of conviction and such a clear will that I could offer all this to my country. Villa's days as a bandido left him well-suited to life as a revolutionary. He was used to hiding in the mountains, moving quickly, evading authorities, and sometimes living without physical comforts. And his status as a folk hero meant that he had no difficulty convincing men to join him in rebellion. By October 1910, Villa had a rebel troop of 350 men. When Villa and his men attacked President Diaz's troops, they would enter battle crying, Viva Villa! It meant Villa lives. During the fighting, Pancho Villa traveled from town to town, and he found lovers in each one. Around this time, he married a woman named Juana Torres, who lived in El Paso. And then he simultaneously married Maria Luz Corral de Villa, who lived in Chihuahua. And these two women wouldn't be Villa's only wives. On May 25, 1911, Villa and his allies successfully deposed Porfirio Diaz. The former dictator fled Mexico City, and for the first time in decades, Mexico hosted a truly democratic election. When Francisco Madero became president the following October, many of the very rebel leaders who had placed him in power were discontent with Madero's leadership. The Mexican Revolution was, among other things, a poor people's revolution, and many revolutionaries doubted that the wealthy and privileged Madero would be a fair leader to the most disadvantaged class in Mexico. Villa disagreed. He truly believed in the value of democracy. Whatever he may have felt about Madero's policies and background, he wanted to honor the will of the people. Madero had won a fair democratic election, so Villa swore his allegiance. When a rebel army rose against Madero in January 1912, Villa came to his defense. But Villa's military prowess wasn't enough to protect his president. Madero was executed, and the political unrest continued. This was when Pancho Villa and Alvaro Obregón's lives collided. In terms of their beliefs, Pancho Villa and Alvaro Obregón should have been allies. They both longed for a democratic Mexico led by a qualified and compassionate president, but each man was suspicious of the other's ambition. During the revolutionary era, when betrayals were common, neither man could afford to trust the other, and they consistently found themselves on opposite sides of battles. It was this inherent distrust that eventually led to Pancho Villa's death. 
Coming up next, we'll explore Villa's final years before his assassination. Now, back to the story. In 1914, as revolutionary factions vied for control of Mexico, an American journalist named John Reed joined Pancho Villa's forces. For several months, he interviewed Villa and his closest confidants, marched with the army, and reported on the battles he witnessed. Reed was taken with Villa's charisma and his passion for democratic justice. When he returned to the United States, Reed reported favorably on the rebellion, helping to ensure that Villa would be as popular with the American public as he already was in Mexico. Villa knew that the war wasn't only being fought on the battlefield. He was also engaged in a fight for the hearts of the Mexican people. He understood the importance of good press at home and abroad. Plus, Villa loved Hollywood movies. So in 1914, he signed a contract with the American movie company, Mutual Film Company, to allow filmmakers to travel with his troops. In return, he would receive 20% of any revenue made from the movies and newsreels that used the footage. The contract proved to be a bad deal for all parties. During his time with the film crew, Villa began to wear a new uniform that was designed to look better on camera. The terms of his contract dictated that he could only wear the uniform during mutual film company shoots, as they had exclusive rights to the outfit. However, it's suspected Villa wore the uniform outside of shoots and never returned it to the company as he was supposed to. Additionally, turn-of-the-century movie cameras were heavy and could only film in the right conditions. Villa was unwilling to make military decisions based on which locations and angles had the best lighting setups, so the film crews were rarely able to capture usable footage. Instead, after the actual battles were over, the crews encouraged Villa's men to reenact key moments. Director Raoul Walsh filmed multiple takes of Villa riding his horse toward the camera as though he were charging into battle. With so little usable footage, the Mutual Film Company pivoted to producing a fictional film instead. The filmmakers shot a traditional scripted movie incorporating some of the staged footage they'd shot in Mexico. The completed film, The Life of General Villa, cemented Villa's status as a romantic war hero in both Mexico and the United States. But that reputation was about to be put to the test. In 1914, Venustiano Carranza gained the presidency in Mexico. He had the support of Villa's former ally-turned-enemy, Álvaro Obregón. But even more importantly, he had the support of the United States. The U.S. government was nervous about the ongoing fighting in Mexico and wanted to support any leader who could stop the violence. So on October 19, 1915, the U.S. formally recognized Carranza as president of Mexico. President Wilson also placed an embargo against U.S. arms dealers selling weapons to anyone in Mexico other than the Carranza government. This was a major blow to Pancho Villa, who had relied on American weapons for his own rebellion. In retaliation, in January 1916, Villa kidnapped 18 Americans and executed them. Three months later, he crossed the border into Columbus, New Mexico, and killed 19 more American citizens in a skirmish. 
Villa hoped these attacks would demonstrate his dissatisfaction and possibly intimidate America into giving him support. Instead, he made a powerful enemy in the North. American General John Pershing rode into Mexico to assist Carranza's troops in capturing Villa, who was now viewed as a terrorist. Villa's own troops rose to defend him, but he began to suffer defeat after defeat. After 10 years as a celebrated warlord, Villa's luck was finally running out. Four years later, in 1920, President Carranza was assassinated. Alvaro Obregón was the clear frontrunner to succeed him. Villa, as we've seen, was no particular fan of Obregón, but he couldn't afford to fight any longer. With the election on the horizon, Villa negotiated a deal to retire from revolutionary politics. The terms of his surrender were generous. At the age of 42, he retired to a 163,000-acre hacienda outside the town of Peral. His hacienda, Canutillo, had farmland dedicated to growing corn, ensuring that Villa received a steady income that could support him in luxury for the rest of his life. For three years, Villa seemed content to heed the terms of his surrender. He spent his days in relaxation. And as for the people who lived near the hacienda, Villa knew how to win their loyalty. His own childhood had been marked by the struggles of living under a tyrannical landowner. Now that Villa owned his own land, he wanted to protect the rights of the poor people who lived on his hacienda. He gave low-interest loans to the farmers who worked on his land and modernized the farming equipment to make the land more profitable. Meanwhile, Villa continued to accumulate wives. He married at least one more woman during his time on the hacienda and may have married more. Many of the illegitimate children he'd conceived during the revolution came to live with him, and he had the chance to get to know his family. And for the first time in his life, he was able to commit time to giving himself a real education. But conflict continued to brew at Canotillo. Before it had been gifted to Villa, the hacienda belonged to the Jurado family. The Jurados hired a man named Melitan Losoya to manage the property, and they gave him permission to sell portions of the land and keep the money for himself. When Villa took over the property, Losoya continued to sell Canatillo land for his own profit, without telling Villa what he was doing. When Villa discovered this, he ordered Losoya to return all the money he'd made or else. Los Oya knew what or else meant coming from the infamous warlord, but he didn't know how to come up with the money. He may have decided the only solution was to kill Pancho Villa. However, Los Oya was far from the only person who wanted Pancho Villa dead. Villa had fought with numerous revolutionary generals before his retirement. Jesus Salas Barraza, Jesus Herrera and Durango Jesus Agustin Castro had all met Villa on the battlefield and suffered losses. Any of these former warlords could have held a grudge. There was also the reality of Villa's lifetime of polygamy and womanizing. By the time of his retirement, Villa had at least three wives and many more mistresses. He fathered countless children, many of them illegitimate. In early 20th century Mexico's honor culture, 
any of these women or their brothers or fathers may have felt motivated to kill the man who brought shame upon their family. But perhaps his most compelling enemy was Alvaro Obregón. He was nearing the end of his first term as president. The Constitution prevented him from running for re-election, but he'd already selected a friend and ally, Plutarco Elias Calles, to run for the seat in 1920. Obregón feared the election would erupt into warfare. This was a reasonable concern given the recent history of Mexican politics. Rumors swirled that Pancho Villa was planning to run for president. While Villa hadn't publicly announced any such intention, and he'd sworn to stay out of politics just a few years earlier, Obregón must have known that Villa was popular enough to beat out his puppet candidate, Elias Callas. Villa also posed a military risk. For the past decade, every new president of Mexico had needed to fight a military battle to take the seat. If Villa intended to stage a rebellion, he had the military experience and the support of the troops to overthrow Obregón and Calles. And of course, Obregón still had a personal vendetta against Villa, who had cost him his right arm in battle years before. He may have wanted revenge, simply for revenge's sake, but getting it would be difficult. Villa lived on his hacienda with a small army of loyal bodyguards. He knew that he had many enemies who were willing to kill, and they would strike if they were given any chance. But on July 19, 1923, 45-year-old Pancho Villa left his hacienda to attend a baptism. A friend and former colleague was the proud father of a baby boy, and Villa was invited to be the child's godfather. Typically, when Villa left his home, he did so on horseback, surrounded by 50 or more mounted bodyguards. Shortly before the day of the baptism, however, Villa had purchased a Dodge touring car, and he wanted to try it out. Because the car could only seat a few passengers, Villa traveled only with his secretary, Miguel Trio, and five bodyguards. Villa and his passengers traveled to the town of Rio Florido without incident. They arrived at the church and attended the baptism. After Villa left, he didn't return directly to his hacienda. Instead, he took a detour to the home of one of his many mistresses in Peral. Villa and his entourage spent the night at her home. The following morning, they loaded into his car and began the journey home. They didn't make it far. Villa's assassins had rented a house on the only road from Peral to Villa's estate, Canatillo. They'd seen him arrive in Peral the night before, and they knew he'd have to pass by on his way back home. When Villa's car reached the intersection of Juarez and Bereda, an old pumpkin seed seller shouted out the old war cry that Villa had used many years ago, Viva Villa. This was a signal. Seven gunmen leapt out of hiding, surrounded the car, and opened fire. The car was sent swerving into a tree. A hail of over 40 bullets overtook the vehicle. Villa was shot nine times in total and four times in the head. He most likely died instantly. One of his bodyguards, Ramon Contreras, was able to kill one of the assassins, but six more remained. Contreras managed to escape, and he later reported that Villa's dying words were, 
Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. Sadly, most historians agree this is probably a fiction. Via would have died before he could say anything at all. After a life on the run as a bandito, after inciting a revolution and overthrowing numerous presidents, Pancho Villa finally met a challenge he couldn't survive. He died there on the streets of Peral. But although Pancho Villa was dead, his revolutionary spirit would live on. The years of political unrest in Mexico weren't finished yet. And while Alvaro Obregón would never formally be accused of ordering Villa's murder, he would meet his own violent end just a few years later. Next week, we'll explore the fallout of Villa's death and Obregón's troubled presidency. We'll also look at how the world might be different if Pancho Villa hadn't died in 1923. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. If you want to learn more about the revolutionary life of Pancho Villa, we'd recommend the Pancho Villa episode of ParCast's other show, Historical Figures. It's a fun one. You can find Historical Figures, more episodes of Assassinations, and all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.